0: Welcome to The Mini Break, your podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. I know what you're thinking already. Alex sounds amazing in this intro. What happened? Well, it's not Alex. What's up, everyone? My name is Gil Gross. I met the eyebrow requirement to host The Mini Break while Gruskin is broadcasting some Illinois college tennis. So uh, I I do thank everyone at Crack Rackets HQ for, for giving me the chance to do this and, and Gruskin, of course. I I will say what he does is extremely impressive. Not that his head needs to be any bigger, but to cover these slams daily with the scope that he does and the detail that he does is very, very difficult to do. So I will use this platform to, uh, to compliment him there. Uh, but, hey, day six at the Australian Open, bottom half, wrapping up round three, really the last day where you have three, four singles matches that you're interested in at once at any given point. Things begin to slow down. The focus starts to be concentrated a lot more on Rod Laver and Margaret Corderina. And, Yesterday was a day with, I'd say, a lot of notable results. A lot happened. There wasn't an obvious headliner, but it is turning into a very, very interesting tournament. And as Groskin does, I'm going to take you through all of these results after a thank you to Tennis Point. Tennispoint.com is the place to go for all of your tennis equipment, tennis apparel, and if you use the promo code CR15, you get 15% off of all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders over $75, and a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. I don't know if there's still a, a shortage of tennis balls. I saw that a, a little while back that there was a shortage, but have no fear, okay? Tennis Point Tennis Point has that stock, and you have nothing to worry about. You get a free can. If you use that promo code CR15, go to tennispoint.com, tennispoint.com, and there's a there's a hyphen as well in between tennis and point, so tennis-hyphen-point.com. I mentioned that there's no obvious headliner that came out of day six, but I would say you start with the number two seed on the women's side, arena Savalenka, who once again dropped the first set for the third straight match here. But once again, came back and defeated Marketa Vondrousova, and there is no doubt that this was the best she looked, and no coincidence that it was the best she's hit her second serve, and she really did, for the most part, tame it because Sabalenka is not someone who was never double faulting and then suddenly started double faulting all the time. She's someone who regularly hit six to. Six to 12 double faults in a best-of-three set match. So when it got up to 20 and, you know, 18, I mean, it, and and the margin that she was missing by, you know, hitting second serves past the baseline, obviously that was uh, the change here. But not that Sabalenka was someone with this very reliable, conventional <clears> – <throat> conventional kicking second serve. No. So she double faults 10 times in this match. She ends up winning 39% of her second serve points. And by the way, that's something that has always fascinated me about the Savalenka second serve, because although she always hit a lot of double faults, she didn't fall into the category of an attackable second serve, which a lot of returners on the WTA tour expect to get a lot of purchase out of attacking the second serve. And when you play Sabalenka, very, very difficult to do it. So 39% second serves won, only double faults 10 times. It's a big breakthrough. And not only that, she looked fantastic off the ground. And she looked fantastic once the points started against von Drusova, winning the second set 6-3. The third set 6-1 really really outclassed the the Czech player in, in every sense here. And von it was a little bit passive from her. I would say some some level of waiting for and, and hoping for Sabalenka to break down. I just would have liked to see her do a little bit more, but also Sabalenka, she's got way more firepower and at her best, she should get the better of this matchup and she did. So let's talk about how she stopped double faulting or, or why she said she was focusing only on one thing, which was driving with her legs. And this isn't about some sort of technical commentary about why driving with your legs is, is important when you're hitting a second serve. That's not, that's definitely not what this is about. I think what could be useful is just the fact that she is using that kind of singular focus strategy that's a that's a smart thing to do. To, to just focus on one thing and try to clear the mind by only focusing on that one thing. That's Yips 101. You know, that's that's the chicken soup as to the cold as focusing on only one technical thing is for the surf. All the time. Will you hear coaches say, okay, you're in your head right now. Just focus on, focus on getting the toss right. Don't think about anything else. Focus on keeping that toss hand up, not letting it drop too soon. Forget everything else. Focus on driving up through your legs. Nothing else. It just, it's a great way to clear the mind. So thought that was interesting. And then the second thing is humor. And that's something that when Sabalenka really made her surge up to the top of the the tour, It's something that she talked about Dmitry Tersinov really helping her with, just taking herself less seriously, remembering that it's a game, and trying to be light out there and enjoy the process of competing by using humor, not only on the match court, but also on the practice court, and it was a big help for her. Well, after the match, she said, the only thing I'm proud about or happy about is that I only hit 10 double faults. And put both arms up to the sky as if she just made her first major final. It was hilarious. It was funny. It was humorous. And if she can approach this issue with that kind of brevity – sorry, levity – with that kind of humor, that's a really, really good thing. And I think that says a lot about why she was able to take the match court – have hit frankly embarrassing second serves and was able to focus on the other parts of her game enough to still get through the matches. So Sabalenka through, She finally looked the part when it comes to a number two seed because early on in the tournament I was saying that if Sabalenka – and I think this is still true. If Sabalenka goes all the way here, it will be by far the most surprising run – by a number 2 seed on their favorite surface in the history of the sport. Now I'm not Mr. Historian so to speak. I mean I so if if someone was uh, if someone knows their their 80s and 90s on a you know on the back of their hand and they can think of a 2 seed on their favorite surface who was written off to the ex- extent that arena sabalenka was written off before this tournament started then I'm not doubting, you know, maybe it's out there. I don't remember that. Sabalenka gets Kanepi next in the fourth round, and that's a good matchup for her. She knows she's just a better version of Kanepi, a top five version of Kanepi. And Sabalenka, with these big hitters, she really does kind of take their rhythm away and doesn't allow them to do what they like to do. I I think that when – I remember – when she played Danielle Collins at the U.S. Open, I, I was thinking that that a player who wants to really control play, it's pretty much a nightmare playing Sabalenka, just mentally and technically. Moving on to what I think is the most notable result on the men's side, it's another loss prematurely in, in a major for Andre Rublev and Marin Cilic with a performance that blew my mind. The most committed big hitting I've ever seen for Marin Chilich by far against Andre Rublev. And with the exception of a, a little rough patch in the third set where Rublev won 12 points in a row and he won those points quickly and efficiently with his first serve, with some really, really strong returns. I mean, it, it, it was like a snap and it happened. With the exception of that... Marin Cilic just sustainably and clearly outplaying Andrey Rublev for four sets here. There's probably never been a performance that I have changed my mind or changed my stock on a player more than what I saw from Marin Cilic. And what I what I mean by that is I have not believed in Marin Cilic as a contender in a very very long time, and I know that there have been spurts, especially on the grass, where I think some people have elevated him to that that contender status, or that you know might make a quarterfinal at, at at Wimbledon, might make a semifinal um, at at a big event. I have for a long time just not believed in Chilich because I think that he hasn't been able to to manage his nerves, and he hasn't been able to play consistent enough tennis but the the brutalizing play that was on display against Rublev and the commitment to hit tennis balls as hard as he possibly could and ensure that they were not going to come back and you know unforced errors be damned he hit 10 more than Rublev in this match wasn't going to matter really irrelevant in this match because it was going to be Essentially, every single point was going to be on Chilich's racket. And he was going to make sure of that. Now, there was, uh, there was a little bit of – there were some returning issues for Rublev. There were some serving issues for Rublev. And again, on the other side of the, the net, it was the opposite for Chilich. Chilich won 85% of his first serve points. I do think there's been a bit of a pattern with with Rublev on on return. He's not been the best against the big servers. You can point to some losses. One that comes to mind is like John Isner in Madrid, but there there have been others where Rublev has had difficulty just returning at a high enough level. He, he lost to Isner in Canada as well. Uh, he lost to Zverev in in Cincinnati at the next event. Now the losing to Zverev is not that's not a match that you really expect Rublev to win, but Uh, You know, lost to Taylor Fritz in Paris. That's another player who's going to play big first serve, plus one tennis. I do think that as far as matchups go, there has been a bit of a pattern there with Rublev. So Chilich wins 85% of his first serve points. Again, just big serving and massive play on the plus one. And on return, this is where I think Rublev can be faulted the most He was just—he was his serve was getting bullied way too much, and you can't really let that happen, especially in the men's game. You're not used to seeing it happen. I mean, Chilich hit seven winners in this match, clean off the return. He, uh, you know, who knows how many how many errors did he force off the return? You'd have to think quite a bit more. Um, I can't see that, but. Rublev just wasn't protecting his serve at all, um, and you shouldn't have to play defense behind your first serve. I thought that Rublev's like his location just wasn't quite good enough, and he wasn't targeting Chilich's backhand enough. There were just too many, especially on the deuce side. Rublev going wide to the Chilich forehand, and Chilich just using his wingspan and and slapping a massively aggressive return. But all in all. The way to kind of summarize this is Chilich just playing big man tennis, bully ball, taking all the rhythm out of this match, and Rublev kind of shrinking under that. It was pretty breathtaking from Chilich. So he comes through and I don't know, you know, I should I do I believe in Chilich right now more than I have in the last two years from one performance? That's a little irresponsible to say. Because it's one match, I don't want to go there. But if I'm che- if I'm if I'm really going with my gut, yeah, I was that impressed. It was that breathtaking for Marin Cilic. So those are the the, the two biggest matches I think. The two bigger biggest headlines is Sabalenka looking herself, Cilic looking the best I've seen him play since 2018 and Rublev out at another slam and you know I do think he's probably getting pretty frustrated here with the results at majors you know he has made a couple of runs to quarterfinals that have been ended at the hands of Daniil Medvedev and uh, Stefano Tsitsipas on the clay Uh, but he certainly wants to make that first major quarterfinal and now a couple of premature losses in a row at Roland Garros jan Leonard's True for Andre Rublev, at Wimbledon Marton Fucevic. at the US Open Francis Tiafo and now at this year's Australian Open uh Marin Cilic. So no top 20 players there. Rublev should be frustrated with that. Let's go to uh Let's go to Danielle Collins who started the match on, um, on Rod Laver Arena and took out Clara Towson in what I think was one of the best matches of the tournament. I really enjoyed this one immensely. Both players playing a similar brand of tennis, no doubt, wanting to be offensive, really equally big off of the forehand and the backhand, dictating players, clean ball strikers – And it was Danielle Collins coming through 7-5 in the third set. I think at the end of the day, this was a a pretty hot day, especially midday in Melbourne. And I want to say what gave Collins the edge was the physicality, just looking a little bit fresher at the end. Now, this was a very, very tight match, very close. And... I'd say the dynamic that that persisted throughout most of the match was not that Towson was tired, but uh, that Towson was not making first serves at a, a high percentage compared to Collins. And when it comes to two players who need to be in charge, need to dictate, want to use their power, making that first serve is going to be the first step to playing those kinds of points. Towson missing first serves, Collins making first serves, especially in the first set, absolutely lopsided as far as first serve percentage is concerned. And I think that was a a really big factor in this match. However, Towson was able to stay in it because Towson was protecting her second serve a little bit better throughout most of the match. And by the way, in the second set, to give you the number, Collins 81% first serves in, Towson 46% first serves in. Now, if you look at like a set one, neither player was making a lot of first serves. What was the difference? Collins winning 27% of her second serve points, Towson winning 47% of hers. So in the third set, that's what I was kind of looking for was what's the first serve percentage going to look like and how are they going to protect their second serves? It turned out there was was really uh, neither player made their first serves and then Uh, Collins started protecting her second serve better. So that's not really what decided things. Towson serving at 5'6", with a couple of tired-looking unforced errors, trying to force that third set tiebreak, bad start to that game. And then at Love 30, I saw a point that really confirmed that Danielle Collins was, at this stage in the match, just more explosive, and had more gas in the tank, which is she cut off this cross-court backhand from Towson and just had beautiful footwork moving up to it and hitting a winner down the line on her backhand with just, again, a very explosive display of footwork by Collins at that stage. And you just looked at at Towson. She wasn't going to be making those kinds of plays on the court. She just looked too tired. Uh, Big backhand return winner on cross court uh sorry on match point from from danielle collins to seal it so i i the physicality is something that towson has worked on a lot and it's something that is miles better leaps and bounds better than she looked in 2021 and i don't think there's a conditioning problem at all but deep into a third set Oppressive conditions in Melbourne, it just looked like Collins had a little bit more and came up with that clutch return game at the very end. Stefano Tsitsipas took out Benoit Pair. I was very interested in this match. You know what? Let me get to this after. I think if I'm going to stay true to going with the bigger results early on, I cannot talk about Tsitsipas Pair before I talk about Taylor Fritz and Roberto Bautista Agu. Five sets, Fritz comes through, 6-3 in the fifth, and a fifth set that it didn't feel close, just didn't have that feel. Two breaks of serve from Fritz, not one. Um, and it felt like it wasn't on RBA's racket. It felt like Fritz actually, and and I know, I think physically most people would favor the Spaniard, looked like Fritz was feeling a little bit sharper. But ultimately, conditions are pretty quick here in Australia, and this was going to be on Taylor's racket with the way he's serving and the way he's playing unapologetic power big man tennis, which is what Paul Anacone has been preaching to Taylor Fritz for the last two years. Just kind of imploring him to trust that forehand, to go after every single ball when the opportunity presents itself. And since ever since Indian Wells really stretches back further than that. Ever since Fritz came back from that meniscus surgery, he is executing that game plan so well. And that is his eighth top 20 victory since Indian Wells. He is eight and two in that stretch. And again, I'm burying the lead here like a bad journalist into a round four out of major for Taylor Fritz. You knew that was going to happen. It was one of the most unsustainable streaks. And I think think Ruskin and I have both hit on that um, in the lead up to this season. One of the most unsustainable streaks in tennis was that Fritz never getting past around round three. The draws have not been good, by the way. If you look at the losses, they're not that bad. But Fritz getting through that was good to see. And if you just look at the the emotion, it was written all over his face how much that meant to him. I was kind of taken aback because a lot of players like to brush that kind of thing off. I take it match by match. Not really thinking about that. It's just any other win. Taylor... Taylor didn't take that approach at all. I mean, he kind of, I'm not going to say he broke down after the match, but if I were to grade the scale of his emotion on a scale from, I just want a major to, I just want a first round at a 250, I would put that reaction at, I just want a 500, bordering on, I just want a master's. That's that's where I would put that reaction from Taylor Fritz. I mean, he was very emotional after the match and then even on social media he wasn't hiding from the fact that this is a big deal for him. So that's really good to see. I thought his forehand took over the match. It was just it was the biggest weapon on the court. Uh, he had a tough serving day and then in the fifth set, he really kind of pulled that together and finally hit his first serve with enough consistency to not get into those 50-50 second serve points with Bautista Agut, and that was kind of the key. And his return looked really good as well. Um, Taylor definitely looked like the better player in this one. It was a fantastic performance, and I really think he's a a very live underdog against Stefano Sitsipas. So let's get to Stefano Sitsipas and then – then I'll talk a little bit about that. I won't go into depth. But uh, Tsitsipas beats Benoit Pair in four sets. Loses that third set in a tiebreak. Um, a match I was excited to see because I, I kind of wanted to see what Pair had in the bag. I, I know that you know, coming off of a win over Grigor Dimitrov, a match that I didn't really get to see much. And then right away, I was – originally it was like, what? Pair is – Pair is back. Pair is playing well. Really? This is the Benoit pair that just beat Grigor Dimitrov. Uh, quite frankly, I, I didn't really get it. I But it turned out that for some reason Benoit came out the gates in this match just not doing anything he needed to do. And he would end up starting to play much better. But uh, he was just hanging back and Tsitsipas was picking him apart, eating him alive just with you know trading blows from the baseline. You know, Pear is just not that player. Pear is not the guy who can give you a, a, a cross-court drill, point in and point out. He's someone who needs to make things funky, needs to change things up, needs to either be, I know this sounds weird to say, but doesn't really like to play in neutral, likes to defend, likes to attack. There's not that much in between. And obviously he needs to keep the ball off of his forehand. One thing that Stefano Tsitsipas did do very well is trade that backhand down the line to get it to Pear's forehand. And from the baseline in rallies, this just wasn't a match. Tsitsipas is just going to be way better. But what Pear ended up doing and figuring out is that the way he wins is he puts more pressure on Tsitsipas by coming forward, by getting it to the Tsitsipas backhand. And moving forward, not letting points drag out, making them short, making them quick, playing really aggressive on return, and coming in. And that's what he started to do, especially off of Tsitsipas' backhand, making him hit passes off of that side. He went to net more and more as the match went on. Also, his first serve got much better. He started to make uh, a higher percentage, and Pass was struggling on that return, which was an enabling Pear to hold serve. But in set one, if you look at net points, he was one for two. Again, just, just hanging back. And that was I, – I was literally confused at how Pear beat Dimitrov watching this first set. And then the second set, um, he comes to net 15 times, goes nine for 15. So the efficiency wasn't great. In set three, when it clipped – He was 14 for 17 at net. He won 83% of his first serve points. Tsitsipas won 90. This was not a good display of first serve returning. Actually, this was a horrible display of first serve returning. Like both players, whenever the serve was going in, there, there was not a lot of good returns being hit. On either side. I can just tell you that. And Tsitsipas ends up winning 89% of his first serve points. So credit to him. He's serving really well. And in that area, I don't think the elbow has been a problem. And that's good to see because before this event, that's the shot that Tsitsipas was alluding to when he was talking about the health of his elbow. At ATP Cup, when he was choosing to kind of only play doubles and lighten the load, he was talking about the serve. And the serve just looks really good. He hit 21 aces in this match, which is an awesome number. Uh, Average speed, 121 miles per hour. Top speed, 136 miles per hour. That serve looks fine. It looks really good. Here's what doesn't look great. The backhand. It's looked a little bit cagey the entire tournament. And another thing that doesn't look great is the aggression. Something that I noticed at the end of last year and I was giving him a pass. I think he deserves a pass. He wasn't healthy. He was playing injured. The elbow wasn't good. But if you look at that loss to Basilashvili, Basilashvili, for example, at Indian Wells, no aggression. It's just passive. The loss to Rublev at the ATP finals before he withdrew. Passive play from Tsitsipas. And in this match, I think, again, he's just not looking very – not looking very confident in taking charge off the ground, which has been strange to see, especially on the back end. It's just not looking very confident. Fritz is that matchup that I think can give Pass problems, I'll say real quick. And if you look at Pas's draw, at the end of the day, he just wants to avoid facing big servers on a hard court. That's it. It's just he doesn't want someone – who is going to blast balls at his backhand, both off of the serve and off of the next ball. He just doesn't want that. The defense, the return on the backhand side, that is the weakness. Anyone who doesn't serve really big can't really take advantage of that weakness. And if you look at the draw, I think the one guy who fits that bill in Pass's section, and I said this before the draw came out, was Taylor Fritz. So what do you know? He's playing Taylor Fritz. I think that's going to be – I make that close to 50-50. I do. Let's go to – what shall we do here? Um, Let's go to Simona Halep real quick. I don't have that much to say here. But Halep has mowed everyone down and she's looking like the favorite uh, 6-2, 6-1 win over Danka uh, Kovanec. Looking like the favorite in that bottom half. Now, Sabalenka, with her performance, is going to start to complicate things. But at the end of the day, I don't hesitate if you're asking me who would I be more surprised if they made the final, Sabalenka, who's, by the way, never done it before, or Simona Halep. I, I don't hesitate because the Demons, they're going to be very hard to shake for Sabalenka, especially because, forget the forget the yips. There's... uh. There's demons that go beyond these short-term yips. Talk about kind of just long-term f- failures under pressure in majors that has gotten much better. And I, I know what you're thinking. You know, she's she's made back-to-back semifinals here at majors. But if you look at those four or five service games in the third set, they have been a little bit choky. Not fully choky. But but definitely a little bit chunky. So who would I be more surprised makes the or or I should really say yeah yeah I guess if I'm talking about the half who would I be more surprised who makes the final? No doubt I'd be more surprised if Sabalenka did it. it might be the favorite. Um in her section. You have Shvientek down there. So I think I think those are the co favors But anyway, she's mowed everyone down so, uh, so far. Yesterday was no exception. And I really love where she's at in her career. I think it's a dangerous spot for Simona Halep and an advantageous spot. Because here you have a top five talent with an underdog mentality at 30 years old. When do you get those three things? Top five talent, underdog mentality, 30 years old. When I say underdog mentality, this is the worst her ranking has been in a decade. Her streak, her historic streak of weeks inside the top 10 um, has ended. And when it looks – you know, when you look at players who spent as much time in the top 10 as Halipaz, you're looking at names like Graf, Navratilova, Everett, and Serena, and Venus. I mean that's – I believe that's the list for how many years in a row Halleck finished as a top ten player. And now she doesn't have that. And now she gets to now she gets to build herself up and say, what's my goal to get back into the top ten? That's her goal. Now she gets to work towards that. She gets to use that as bulletin board material. And she gets that experience, that rush of climbing up the rankings, something that she hasn't gotten a feel in a decade because she's been at the top. She's been in the top 10. And now she gets to kind of have that underdog mentality. I got to climb. I got to move my way up. Um, You know, I'm right now I'm 15 in the world. My ranking doesn't give me the respect that I deserve. And sometimes you see that and the player is washed, the player is done. So you can say, a player like I don't know, you can say a former top tener like I don't know, John Isner, who's did not have a run in the top ten even close or comparable to Simone Hallup. but I can't think of a better example right now, so I'm just gonna go with it. Now, John Isner was in the top ten. Where's he at now? Does he does he have the underdog mentality? You might be asking, you know, Gil, can't you just say this for everyone? No, because John Isner is outside the top twenty now where he had been a mainstay, if I change the the standard here and make it top 20, he had been a mainstay for nearly a decade, and now he's outside. Well, wait a second. That's, that's the natural progression of a career. He's old. Simona Halep is not. She's 30. Now, for some reason, there has been, and I don't know if she brought this on herself or not, for some reason, there have been some retirement questions floating around. I don't know where they come from. Maybe they come from Simona, in which case, okay. But if they've come out of the blue, I know that Simona has said she thinks she has a couple years left. My point is, why has she even had to answer these questions? She's 30 years old. She's outside the top. She started this year outside the top 10 for the first time in a decade. I think since 2013. I I don't have that in front of me, but I think it's since 2013 was the last year um, that she finished outside the top 10. I just, I really like the situation she's in in her career. Uh, I like her to have to have a, to play really good tennis in 2022, especially over the course of the first half. What haven't we hit on here? Um, if there's anything that I, you know, I think those are the the matches that I want to go into the most depth on. I will run through some some more results. And uh, I did watch a lot of Elise Corne and her win over Tamara Zdancic. Which was a three-set win for Cornet. Physicality is is all you need to know about this match. I mean, it was uh, you don't have a huge serve on the court here. You don't have a you don't have massive weapons on the court. Biggest weapon on the court is Judanchek's forehand. And that mattered at times, but it didn't matter enough. At the end of the day, you don't have a really big weapon on the court. You have two players who move great. They're incredibly mobile, they're very consistent. So this was about the legs. This got super, super physical, and ultimately, again, it was hot. Zidantic started forcing things a little bit too much because she got tired, and Corne was uh, was kind of fresh as a daisy. I was pretty blown away. Speaking of a player, you know, thinking about retirement, talking about retirement. Cornet saying that this might be her last year, but from a physical fitness uh, perspective, at 32, she's kind of blowing me away. I was watching this match. I mean, Cornet can run for days. It was very impressive. Zdanski, I will say, might might have a little bit of a knee issue, so there were times where I couldn't tell if it was knee injury or fatigue, but the movement was shot by the end, and that's why you saw the last the last set, the third set, it was 6-2, because uh, Cornet. If this was like a fight, you know, Zdancek was, uh, Zdancek looked like it was uh, round 12 and corne was, it was round four. And that's why, that's why she won. Medvedev took out Botek on Schultz, a rematch of the US Open. BVDZ was the only player who took a set off of Medvedev at the US Open, which has become a very funny like thing in his bio, because I do feel like it's. It's probably a top five bullet point for Botic. It, it probably shouldn't be. Like, he wouldn't want that to be a top five bullet point. He would probably say, I qualified for three majors last year. I only lost one match when it comes to qualifying at the majors, and I shot up the rankings, and I actually played really well. In those uh, in the in the main draws of a lot of these majors, you know, when I played Medvedev, it wasn't in the first round. Made the round of sixteen. Come on, give me some. But anyway, Medvedev looked really good in this match. And one thing that even uh, Gruskin shouted me out on Twitter about this is, you know, w- w- with a matchup like this, Botic moves very well for his size. And really picks his spots as far as injecting pace into rallies. The very crafty player who is not going to give his opponents needless pace. He, he likes to kind of trade slow, attack fast. Sometimes he attacks slow too, and, and it's, you know, it's really about coming forward for him. But that's a, on paper, that's a difficult matchup for Medvedev, and Medvedev looks very comfortable Um, making things happen, generating offense from the back of the court. Now, I think Medvedev playing during the day on these courts, that's big for him. If Medvedev is going to have an issue with with pace generation or hitting through the court, it's probably going to be at night, and it's probably going to be against someone with elite speed. And Botick doesn't quite have that. He's got good speed, but very consistent player— who likes to take pace off the ball, and Medvedev looked really good in that win. Alex Diminor continues to play well in Australia. He took out Pablo Andujar. Good run for Andujar. I, I'm, I really love what, um, what Pablo is doing at this point in his career, and that deserves some recognition. It deserves to be noticed. Uh, but Diminor, who, let's face it, I mean, 2021, and even 2020 to an extent where kind of everyone got a pass because of the pandemic, Demonor's has just gone the wrong way, and it's been really disappointing. And he's such an exciting player with his play style. I'm so happy to see him winning. I'd like to see him win away from Australia before I can kind of commit to the idea that he's a changed player, that he's a better player. But Demonor was under 500 last year, and he won two titles, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's a bad thing that he's under 500, yet he won two titles. It just shows you that he was packing his bags in the first two days at events for a large portion of the season because he wasn't making it out of that first and second round. Because he had those two title runs. It was Antalya and and um, Eastbourne, I believe. It was definitely a grass court tournament if it wasn't Eastbourne. I beg your pardon, but it was a grass court tournament, and it was Antalya. And he still finished last year under 500. So now, big win over Berrettini at the ATP Cup. Looked good, looked motivated, and you'll love to see him through to uh, to the fourth round here in Australia. And he'll face Yannick center next, and that'll be a, a really, really great litmus test for Demonor, who I'm sure will be getting uh, the Rod Laver Arena treatment, I think. Pretty sure. You never know. By the way, what is with Australia scheduling all the women at the same time and all the men at the same time? It's just – is there a reason for this? It's I – don't, I don't know. Like I suppose – I suppose you can't complain unless you are a really big fan of one of the tours over the others. Like if you're an ATP fan or if you're a WTA fan – then it, it kind of stinks for you because you're missing a lot needlessly and you don't have to. But even if you're covering the sport from a perspective, like if you are a – if you're like a Courtney, I don't know, or I don't know pl- people who just – I don't know. I guess it doesn't matter. It's just been weird. I don't know like if there's an explanation for it I guess is is what I'm wondering. And it has been consistent every single day. And maybe there's an explanation for it. I just haven't been told. Every single day, first two matches on Margaret court, Rod Laver Arena, it's it's, woman, woman, man <laughs> uh, on on Rod Laver every single day. I, I don't get that. Like just mix it up maybe. I don't know. Okay. Sidetrack. <laughs> uh, Kirsteia. Little bit of an upset here over uh, Pavlochenkova. Serana Kirste has been pretty good recently, and uh, good results continue for her. Kaya Kanepi ends the uh, Cinderella run of Madison Inglis. So another run for Kanepi, and uh, that was a three-set win. Kanepi looked like the better player by far in the final two sets. And then finally, Yannick Sinner takes out Taro Daniel. Dropped the second set, but won it in four. Oh, and then I think the match that's gone, uh, the one match that I that I missed here is Fiontek versus Casiquina, which I actually do want to talk about for a second. Uh, great to see Casiquina in the form that she's in. It's been really good. It's been really fun to watch. I think she's uh, stylistically, she's so different and such an entertaining player. But Grusk and I were even on the phone at one point talking about this. What is it that she does better than Spiontek? It's kind of hard to come up with. She's a little bit craftier. I I like her hands and her angles probably a little bit more. But at the end of the day, she just doesn't have um, – there's not a lot that she does better than, than Iga. It was close. Now, the scoreline is 6-2, 6-3. It was a lot closer than that. A lot of deuce games. A lot of big points. But I think Sviante has more heaviness off the forehand. More heaviness off the serve. The movement is just as good. She just is kind of a heavyweight version of Daria Kaskina. And the one thing that I think is kind of holding Kasakina back from being a top ten player, which she was at one point briefly, right? I think after after winning Indian Wells way back. I, I I think she got to the top ten for a second there. The one thing that's uh holding her up I think right now from getting back there is just the serve. And if you look at this the service numbers, she she won 53% of first serve points and actually fifty five percent of second serve points. So there's not much between the first and the second serve. It, They're both, you know, those are point starting numbers. Those are numbers that say, what did the serve do for Daria Kasatkina? They started the point. That's it. Now, on the positive side, her second serve didn't get attacked, at least statistically. So that's good. It, you know, it's it wouldn't be shocking to see if she had a 40% win percentage on the second serve. So that's good. She actually protected it a lot better than I would have predicted because her her season-long averages are often around like 41%. So so that's good to see. I I do think that she hit some uh, well-located second serves throughout this match and attacked actually the Iga forehand, mixed it up a lot. But just didn't really rush, couldn't really rush Iga quite enough. And Sviantek with a, a great performance. I think the stat that everyone is coming around on, is how consistent Sviantec has been at the majors. Backing up her her win at Roland Garros ever since then, um she really she's been a model of consistency. It's another second week for her. That is what. That is how many second second weeks in a row. Um the only thing I'm blanking on is US Open 2020. So I'm just going to pull this up. Let's see how many uh let's see how many How many weeks in a row Iga has been in the second week? And I do want to drop a take on Sviantec in general. WTA players who I think are a lock to end the year in the top 10, because of how many contenders there are, and because some of the players are a little bit difficult to predict, um, the only two players who I would – put at over a 90% chance meaning I really couldn't imagine them falling out of the top 10 is Barty and Sviatek. I, I love Muguruza, right? But we've already seen her drop out of the top 10 kind of inexplicably for no reason. Arena Sabalenka, you know, you, you would think that she's a top 3 player, but what's going on right now? You know, can can there be big issues? The only player who And don't get me wrong, Muguruza Sabalenka. I think they'll be in the top 10 at the end of the year. I'd be surprised if they weren't. But who are locks? Who who are players that give me like no doubt? It's rare. Swiatek is one of those players where I just couldn't really see anything going wrong enough that, that she wouldn't um, finish in the top 10. OK. So now I have her major results pulled up. And I actually – She's been in the second week. She didn't play the U.S. Open in 2020, and that's why I couldn't remember how she did. (laughs) Uh, She has been in the second week at every single major. Round of 16, every single slam since winning Roland Garros in 2020. That's crazy. That's really, really good stuff from from Iga, who still just – I think she gets a little bit timid on fast courts – against the players with the most firepower. Those are kind of – those are the conditions. Those are the factors that I think add up to a vulnerable Iga Sviantek. But she gets Serrano Kirstea in the fourth round. She'll be a favorite to win that one. She hasn't been back to a major semifinal since winning RG. So she will have a chance to do that, likely, if she beats Kirstea – and then she'll play Kaya Kanepi or Arena Sabalenka, and there it is, that big hitter on a hard court. Those are the matchups. She just hasn't looked quite comfortable in pace absorption, the pace of play in general with her footwork, being a little bit rushed, not playing attacking tennis against a player who hits really big on a hard court and serves big. She needs to kind of just stake her, stake her foot in the ground and... Play that confident attacking tennis when she gets the chance, even against an, an Arena Sabalenka or a Kaya Kanepi, perhaps, in the quarterfinal. So, uh, big spot for Sviantek. I uh, I would love to see her and Simona Howell in the semifinal. Hmm. Those are all your results. So, let's go uh, match of the day tomorrow. Let's look at the uh, order of play, the match schedule. I think it's an absolutely stacked schedule on Rod Laver Arena. You got Madison Keys and Paola Bedosa. Uh, first up, you get Krejcikova and Azarenka. Second, Manorino and Nadal will cap off the day session. Then you get Bardi and Isimova, and Karina Busta Berrettini is the last match on RLA. Margaret Corderina, Pagula and Sakharid, Zverev and Shapovalov. And then you get that one singles match on John Kane, which is Ketchmanovich and Mofis. Match of the day on the women's side, to me, is Barty and Isamova. I think everybody disappointed that they – and feeling a little bit robbed that they didn't get that Osaka-Barty. But that's just and, – and look, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, I wanted to see it too. But that's just name. That's just the name recognition thing. Barty and Isamova with the way Isamova is playing – it's uh it's going to be another fascinating match as Ash I think is is the storyline on the women's side of the tournament is can she win that Australian Open for the first time since I don't know if I've committed this to memory yet. I think it was 1981 was the last time an Australian woman uh won the Australian Open. Anyway, end that drought and cement her st- cement her status yet again as the dominant player in the world, which I believe she is. But um it would be good for her to win that hard court slam to really to really drive that point home on the men's side what's the match that i'm most intrigued by i think i actually think i'm more intrigued by nadal Manorino than i am by Zverev and Shapovalov now let's see which match let's see which which match is better it could go either way and no disrespect to Chapo but I don't know that that's a matchup that's going to treat him well from a Shapovalov perspective. I think Zverev's pace absorption and his defense and his depth, it's the kind of combination that I think can lull Shapovalov or or I guess force Shapovalov into a lot of overhitting and a lot of unforced errors. And I, I still have concerns about... Um Chapo's return against a serve as good as Zverev's, some concerns there. So I don't know. I'm kind of fascinated to see Manorino right now because he's been so – he's such an interesting opponent, such a fascinating game he plays, really unlike any other. And in taking out Aslan Karatsev and taking out Hubert Herkacz and doing it pretty decisively – he just has me he's a he's a must-watch player right now. What is going on in the world of Adrian Manorino? It there's there's not that much that would have suggested that he was gonna do this. I mean, he he played well over the fall on some of those indoor hardcore events, but he kind of always plays well. Normally outside is pretty different for Manorino than inside, but you know, Nadal Nadal playing a good match against Hatchinov as well, I just, whenever you get Manorino, there are just a lot of questions about what is this going to look like from a matchup perspective? And in some respects, sometimes it feels like Manorino either is solved or is doing the solving. And sometimes it it seems like you can get a read on the match very early on, but I'm I'm pumped for this. You know, you think about even what he did to... Roger Federer. And this was, you know, Federer after the Manorino match, which he was probably going to lose before Manorino injured his knee. Federer went on to beat Cam Norrie in straight sets. So this wasn't a terrible version of Roger Federer that Adrian Manorino on a stadium court uh, with the, the entire world watching pretty much was able to, to come out and bring his A-game. And I'm just really interested to see how that matchup plays out lefty on lefty here the one of the flattest hitters on tour with Manorino versus the player who hits the most top spin on tour in Rafa Nadal inject this into my veins this is the we're getting back to back science experiments is what i'll say we are getting a science experiment in Cressy versus Medvedev in 2 days and we are getting a science experiment here tactically in Manorino versus Nadal All right, again, um, my name is Gil Gross. You can find me on Twitter at Gil underscore Gross. You can find my podcast content if you search up Monday Match Analysis. You can find me on YouTube if you look up your name. Uh, Sorry, don't look up your name and find me on YouTube. That will not work, I guarantee it. What will work is if you look up my name, Gil Gross. That's Gil with two L's. G-I-L-L-G-R-O-S-S. Hope you enjoyed this. Again, a big thank you to the Crack Rackets team for uh, allowing me to uh, step into this role. Again, I fit the eyebrow requirement, um, and that's what – I'm really thankful for that. And big props to Alex doing this every day. I hope you guys appreciate him. Because uh, it's, uh, again, just the scope of it, covering as many, it's just not what I do. You know, generally, I, I have a bit more of a, a focus on less matches. You know, the mini break is so needed in the tennis landscape because it gives you that overview, that daily overview during a major. And um, it, is, uh, it takes a lot of work and a lot of dedication to get that done. So props to Gruskin for that. Now, when we go head-to-head, whose takes are correct? Mine. But uh, that's neither here nor there. Again, hope you enjoyed it. And enjoy the tennis as we go on to day seven of the Australian Open.